0: It's not often that a single person's life can reveal the dramatic, social, and political shifts of a community. From his youth, John Papa'i'i, e. e., an important statesman and author, played a pivotal role in shaping and supporting the 19th century kingdom of Hawaii. In Facing the Spears of Change, the Life and Legacy of John Papa'i'i, e. e., Marie Alohalani Brown carefully traces the contours of his biography with nuance and beauty. The book is rich with detail and one of the few histories to put the vast corpus of Hawaiian language sources to use in understanding the island's past. John Papa Ee's life also serves as a rewarding vantage point for thinking about Hawaiian religion during the early years of the Kingdom of Hawaii and the expanding influence of Christianity. In our conversation, we discuss genres of life writing, challenges of reframing Hawaiian modes of thinking into Western academic categories, Christian conversion, John Papa E.E.'s upbringing, the importance of family genealogy, the Laplace Affair, King Kamehameha and his descendants, Hawaiian language sources, John Papa E.E.'s productive retirement, and his lasting importance for Hawaiians today. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Now, without any further delay, here's my conversation with Alohalani Brown about Facing the Spears of Change, the life and legacy of John Papa E.E.'
1: Welcome, Aloha Lani. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Religion. How are you?
2: I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm
1: great. Yeah, and I really, I really enjoyed this book, Facing the Spears of Change. I think for for regular listeners, it will be an interesting change of pace, uh, both in kind of the content, but also in the approach. Uh, so I'm looking forward to kind of getting into that. But uh, before we get into the book, we always start with a little bit, of, a little bit about our authors. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about um your background, um how you got interested in uh, the study of religion, religious cultures, uh, perhaps uh, moments or mentors that were influential in shaping uh, your your approach?
2: Okay, well, like many other, Hawaiians, I grew up uh, navigating two different cultures and two different belief systems. For example, um, on the one hand, I was raised a Catholic, and then on the other hand, though, I was also raised to respect Hawaiian gods, and it, the things were kept rather separate. So what actually started my interest in, in religion was when I was doing my MA thesis for um, a, a, a graduate degree in Hawaiian language, and I wanted to know more about the class of Hawaiian reptilian deities called mo'o, of which uh, one is my aumakua, which means ancestral guardian. And so that started my my research into Hawaiian religion. And... Then later on, when I was doing my Ph.D. studies in the Department of Religion, I wanted to know more about John Papa'i'i, a Hawaiian historian and statesman who wrote a very long series in the Hawaiian language newspapers in the 19th century. And he speak, he spoke quite a bit about Hawaiian religion, but also Christianity, so...
1: Now, could you talk a little bit about how kind of it began to emerge? What kind of motivated you to uh tackle John Papa EE e. in in this way uh kind of as a, a biography rather than kind of a broader historical approach or you know, something like this? What what made you uh kind of write the book in the way you did?
2: As I was I'm one of the handful of uh, scholars who can easily access the Hawaiian language and who enjoys doing research in Hawaiian language archives. And I kept running into John Papa uh his name and, and his series, and he wrote quite a bit about Hawaiian gods. And so in the end, I decided that I wanted to write something that would have significance for Hawaiian people today, and rewriting a bit of history as well, because a lot of the Uh, Treaties that have been done on Things Hawaiian have been done normally um, from English language sources or uh, a handful of translated works. Six works which form the supposed canon of Things Hawaiian, but these six works were written by four Hawaiians and EE was one of them. And so I decided that it would be interesting and, and it was. You just recently won an award, actually.
1: Yeah, congratulations! Thank you. Yeah, now that, that, this was one of the things that I really uh, liked about your book was you employed so many Hawaiian language uh, sources. Um, so uh, you you kind of mentioned that uh, this very narrow canon was used in previous scholarship. Can you can you talk a little bit about why you thought uh, why you think uh, other scholars thought this was sufficient? Um, And then can you talk about the the wide array of sources that you use to inform your project?
2: Okay. I think that there was in general in an earlier time, up until recently at least, a ignorance in general about the great degree to which Hawaiians were representing themselves in the newspapers beginning in 1834 with the publication of the first newspaper – and ending with the last issue of the last Hawaiian newspaper in 1948. So here we have from 1834 to 1948 educated Hawaiians uh, writing about a variety of topics. Now, in case you and your readers, uh, your listeners don't know this, we had one of the highest literacy rates in the world at the time of the Hawaiian Kingdom, and several of uh, many Hawaiians were bilingual, trilingual. Some of them were studying at Lahaina Luna, the seminary that was created by Queen Ka'ahumanu and the missionaries, Lahaina Luna in in Maui. And so we were an educated bunch. And uh, when scholars began writing about things Hawaiian, many of them could not access Hawaiian, and they had to rely on the handful of translated works, mostly of which uh, were translated by Mary Kavenapukui, and there's something called the hens uh the hen notes the Hawaiian ethnography notes for the Bishop Museum archives and Mary Kavenapukuis uh dedicated her life several decades of her life translating these things and then anthropologists and folklorists like Martha Beckwith would uh use those uh translations and so Today, of course, that is changing because we're recovering um, our language and our practices and things like that so I thought that that was very important to um, show the the wealth of our archives. It has been calculated that if you were to um, type out all the newspapers on a eight by ten 8x10, 8x11, double space, times Roman 12, there would be well over a million pages. And some of those uh, newspaper series, for example, there was one, it was 32 installments, and it was called Ho'omana Kahiko, which you could translate as the old religion and the ancient religion. And this was written by Hawaiian students at the seminary. All right, so that's one. And as far as resources go, well, clearly Hawaiian-language newspapers um, many of which have been microfilmed, and then some have gone um character recognition. Um, but what I did instead was I read every single page of every single newspaper published between 1834 and 1870, which was the lifetime of John Papa E.E., e., and then I read another two years after that just to see if anybody was saying something about him. Um, but then again... Um, the missionary record, their journals, their official correspondence is a valuable record. You have to understand that the first company of American Board of Commissioners for foreign missions, American Protestants came over, um, they arrived on March 30th, 1820. And so from 1820 to 1870, EE e. was well known amongst them as being a, um, she was the example of the perfect Hawaiian Christian according to them and so I looked at their different letters and correspondence and journals and then of course that was a time early 19th century Hawaii was a time when Hawaii was becoming a port of call if you will and so there's a lot of different captains journals and other things um, that I looked at so a wide variety of archives
1: now um you're looking in relation to John Papa'i specifically in uh, genres of life writing. Yes. And so, could you talk about some of the ways that Hawaiians discuss the world? What kind of image of the 19th century do they give us? And why why was life writing becoming increasingly popular over this this century?
2: Well, one of the things that I, I discuss in my book, in the introduction, which is highly theoretical, is the different types of life-writing genres that we had. Hawaiians were very interested in celebrating lives, and they did this through a variety of genres, um, different kinds of chants through genealogies. And then um, once the newspapers started and they were exposed to American European genres, Western genres of, of, of writing, they began uh, writing their versions of, of of biographies or autobiographies and what I discovered actually um, beginning in eighteen thirty four with the first example which was by Gideon Lanouille of uh, the first example of of what we would consider or understand as Western uh, life writing is that even though they would profess to be writing autobiographies it wasn't ever narrowly concerned with itself, but with their ali'i, which is the ruling class. And I found that very interesting. And so one of the reasons why I thought biography would be a good approach is because you see Hawaiian history through the lens of John Papa Ee's life. And he lived in a very interesting moment because in 1819, just after King Kamehameha I had died, the prevailing religious, cultural, political system was officially abolished. And so from um, the end of May until the end of March in uh, 1820, so from May 1819 to end of March 1820, there was no official religion. This was a period of, of spiritual chaos for many people, and John Papa'i'i writes about it. So looking at his life actually shows us what some Hawaiians went through as they uh, navigated this transition from one political system to another and then from one religious system to another.
1: Yeah, and part of what I think also, uh, at least for for me as a reader, was valuable in this uh, was I think you uh, highlight the problem of assuming the universality of analytical categories where, you you know, when we're trying to think about uh, our own scholarship on uh, Hawaiian culture, the uh, preconditions that we come with might not kind of overlay in the same way. Oh,
2: yes. Um,
1: So could you talk a little bit about or or kind of maybe highlight uh, one or two of the challenges of reframing Hawaiian modes of thinking into, into Western categories?
2: Well, one of the first things is that as a Hawaiian, I'm very much a member of my community, and it, it's, it's different groups, and the groups reform, but we're all part of the larger community, and we pretty much know each other, and if we don't know each other personally, we know each other through somebody else, and so you're always accountable to your community. And we're always very aware as indigenous peoples that anything, that any kind of knowledge that we produce can either help us or hurt us. And this has been the case for many different indigenous peoples across place and time. And so that's the first thing you need to keep in mind when you're doing research. So there's an ethic ethical component to it that needs to be considered. And then at one point I speak about uh, kuliana, which can be understood as a set of rights and responsibilities that come, um, uh, come with being Hawaiian, but also uh, depending on your place in the Hawaiian community. And so one of the things I thought about is, okay, so here I'm going to be writing about this man who was a public figure, and I thought about it a while, and I decided it would be okay to write about him because other Hawaiians wrote about him um, during the time in which he lived. Because we have a saying, we have a saying that, that's is um, along the lines of kaolai uh, naivi, Don't put the bones out to dry. So that which means that you know there's certain things that you don't talk about, and. In the end, I decided to be quite forthright about how I portrayed EE e. and his fellow Hawaiians, even if sometimes it wasn't putting them in the most flattering light, because I wanted to have people truly understand the tensions and the difficulties that they faced. And so you have a, a more realistic idea of what it was like to live In this time. So, analytical categories. One of the things, too, is my approach to writing about John Papa'i's life and about um, Hawaiian religion um, in general is that we have our own theories and, and methodologies for producing knowledge. And so those are the type of uh, cultural values that I grew up with, and I blend those um, with my training as a Western scholar.
1: This is great. Now, just one more thing before we kind of pop into the details of this important figure. Um, Perhaps just for our conversation, we can foreground religion, and you've you've already been doing that, Uh, but this is an important thread throughout the book, and as you mentioned, there are these kind of... um, key transformations happening during his lifetime. So um, since many listeners will not be familiar with the the kind of cultural and religious context of uh, 19th century Hawaii, can you give us some of the kind of broader contours about Hawaiian culture and religion uh, during the early years of the kingdom of Hawaii, the changing conditions in terms of uh, the role of the monarchs and the court Um, in practicing religion, and then perhaps uh, uh, just a little bit about the kind of uh, missionary efforts and introduction of Christianity during uh, his life.
2: Oh, yes. Okay, well, to begin, the religious system was called the I-kapu. I refers to food and food consumption, and kapu refers to something that is sacred and therefore in need of um, restriction. It was the idea that eating food was sacred. And so this also saw the separation, if you will, of the male and female essence. And in any case, what happened was it required women and men to eat separately. And it prohibited certain foods to women, which happened to be uh the forms the food forms that are associated with the major four male gods so women were prohibited from eating pork most type of bananas most type of um coconuts and then for example red fish and there were there were other things of course and so John Papai'i, e. e., for example grew up in this system and it's important to understand that that this religion was actually a not just a religion it was a political system and it was a cultural system it affected nearly every aspect of hawaiian life so in 1819 when kamehameha's widows he had many wives but kamehameha um but Keopo'olani was his sacred wife. Ka'ahumanu was a powerful woman, and she was his favorite wife. They convinced Liholiho, who went on to become uh, King Kamehameha II, to abolish this system, and so he did. But while well, this happened, it actually um, it, it resulted in a religious war. You have to understand that at one point in Hawaiian culture, the rule would be given to one person and the war god, which was called Ku Ka Ilimoku or Island Snatching Ku, was given to um, another relative high ranking ali'i. And so you would have the high priest of this great, powerful god, one of the, the most important gods that helped Kamehameha do the unprecedented feat of uniting all of the Hawaiian islands under one rule. And so when this happened, Kekua Okalani, who had inherited the war god Ku Kailimoku, went to war with um, Liholihos war general and was lost and um, died along with his wife Manono. So that gives you a little bit insight into what a uh, a huge change. This was this, this this system had been in place for countless centuries, and indeed, its origins are in mythical times with the sky god named Wakea and the earth mother named Papahānaumoku, or the island birthing stratum, who are said in some traditions to be the parents of the Hawaiian islands and Hawaiians. And there's different treaties on on why Ka'ahumono and Keopu. Um, Keupulani might have wanted to abolish this system, um, but I don't really cover it in my book. So those were the changing conditions John Papai'i e. e recalls in in one of his series, uh, installments, that he threw himself down at liho 's feet and begged him to reconsider the abolishing this religious system. You have to understand that John Papai'i e. 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 had been the attendant to this king since they were children they were separated by about 3 years in age and ee e. was the third generation of a of, of an ali'i family so a a ruling really, um, uh, a high ranking family who had dedicated their lives to serving kamehameha and his descendants um, other people have explained that liho uh, liho and john papa ee e. e. were what we would call fourth cousins but liho liho, it's also important to understand, was considered a divine human. So this is also a change in condition. A question that I ask in my book that I could not find a question, an answer to was, after the abolishment of the kapu, this religious um, system, in which ali'i were considered divine, the highest ranking ali'i were considered divine humans, And that you could be put to death if you broke one of the prohibitions concerning their bodies. What happened after that? E.E. never writes about that. That's something that needs to be explored. So this is the condition in which the uh, American Protestants arrive in um, the beginning of 1820. And what's very interesting is that when they arrived, and they were able to communicate with the king, Liholiho, he granted them one year. He granted them permission to stay in the islands for one year, but he directed John Papa'i'i and another fellow named Kahuhu to go and learn from the missionaries and decide uh, whether it was worth keeping them around for more than a year. So that's an example of the kind of power that John Papa E.E. E. had because had he not found found their teachings valuable, he could have told the king to um, send them away. It would have been quite a different uh, historical situation there.
1: Yeah, certainly. Now, this is great. You've, you've kind of introduced us uh, to kind of his early life, uh, explained a little bit about the genealogical reasons why he was able to kind of be in communication and in close um, connection with the, the ruling elite. As he became a young adult uh, and he's at the service of Kamehameha III, uh, could you talk a little bit about um, the role Papa Ee played at this point um, and some of the, the key developments that were happening under this kind of establishment of the new this new ruling
2: power? Right. Okay. So the first thing that Queen Ka'ahumanu did, who was the Kohina Nui or... Co ruler almost, but not quite. Um, so it's something like a prime minister. She made EE the attendant to the young king and also he was to um, help the king learn more about uh, Christianity whenever there wasn't a missionary around. So right from the start, EE was one of the first Hawaiians to become a convert to Christianity. And so he, Queen Ka'ahumanu, uh, early on traveled around the islands ordering Hawaiians to become Christians. Hawaiians did what their alii, the high-ranking, uh, Hawaiians, their rulers, um, asked them to do. And my colleague, Jeffrey Kapali Lyon, is currently writing an article for, um, uh, a local archive here, about this relationship between Ali'i's orders and the promotion of Christianity. What happened is, because of Ka'ahumanu going around and telling everyone that they needed to become Christians, and when the young king, Kaui'i King Kamehameha III, um announced his his intention for his nation, he said that it will be a literate nation and you will be a Christian nation. Now what happens is several years later um, uh, Queen Ka'ahumanu dies and everything just falls apart. At this point there were a lot of schools because literacy was an important part of promoting Christianity and when she died the king um. Oh, gosh, just just walked away from everything that that he had said that he wanted for his his people, literacy and Christianity. And so in the end, it's very interesting to look at what happened, because you realize that Christianity succeeded in Hawaii because the Ali'i wanted it so. So, missionary efforts, for example, um, it began with literacy. And so, as soon as they could teach everyone to read in Hawaiian, then they began creating schools and then they were able to teach, um, Hawaiians about Christianity. And they built quite a few churches. It was, it was, it was, it was very, very interesting how quickly. Uh, this conversion happened and how quickly the Hawaiians became illiterate people. But what I discovered, and this really isn't in my book that much, but it's in an article that I wrote recently, is that there is a huge amount of evidence that shows that while a portion of the society did become Christians, um, there were a large number of Hawaiians who continued to practice Hawaiian religion
1: so what what did this look like this kind of dual uh, participation?
2: Well, some Hawaiians just went underground they practiced it privately in their houses. John Papa'i'i went from being an acolyte to an enforcer of Christianity. Um, he complained to uh, Reverend Levi Chamberlain that his own cousin had uh, turned away from Christianity and had set up a an altar of sorts to worship a, a God associated with healing because he was sick. And when Levi Chamberlain heard about this, he was rather distressed because this man's wife had been um, uh, one of their um, converts that had actually lived with the missionaries for a while. And the kahuna himself had been someone who had helped teach Christianity, but then had eventually turned away. So that's one example. Another example, which I found in the newspapers, which is not in my book, is the case of a Hawaiian pastor And I forget which island, but he would hold his sermons and and worship God. And then at the end of the sermon, according to this person who complained in the newspapers, he would say, "Okay, now we've worshipped the Christian God. Now let's turn our attention to our ancestral guardians. And of course, the complaint was that he needed to be booted out because that was not acceptable.
1: Yeah, it's really fascinating stuff. I, I know you don't uh, write about this kind of uh, broader social life so, uh, so much in the book, but uh, I, I had to kind of follow that that lead there. Um, another kind of important event during Papa Yi's kind of uh, young adulthood is this uh, Laplace affair, uh, which he plays an important role in kind of navigating. Can you you talk about the circumstances that led to this situation a little bit and then how it was resolved?
2: Yes. Okay. Well, the Lii had decreed that everyone would be Christian, but their brand of Christianity was Protestantism. And so when uh, Catholic priests started arriving to Hawaii, they weren't treated very well. In fact, they were persecuted. And so the French uh, were not happy with this. In fact, the Hawaiian word for Catholicism back in the day was mana palani, or the French way of giving spiritual power. And so what happened was at one point, Captain Laplace arrives to Hawaii, um, engaged in what we call gun bloat, gunboat diplomacy, demanded $10,000 as a um, deposit, if you will, on good intentions of uh, treating French people and uh better in the future. And so he demanded a a hostage. And the hostage at the time was Timothy Ha'alilio, who was the personal secretary to King Kamehameha III, the same um, man that Ii had raised from childhood. And then at the time, Mataioke Kuanaua, who was the brother-in-law to the king because he had married his half-sister Kina'u, and John Papa Ii was a personal secretary to Kina'u who was a co-regent, if you will, the uh, prime minister of sorts. So Mateo Kekuanao writes to Laplace and tells him, "We really need Haalili'o. The king needs him as his secretary. So I am offering you another man of equal rank to me and Haalili'o. And so please exchange um, the hostages." Now Laplace, I I I, um, I can access French. And so I went directly to read Laplace's own uh, <laughs> description of those events. And what he said was that he really admired Hailelio. He he found quite European, who spoke English well, and who was dressed in a way, and who was quite engaging. And he really enjoyed have, having him aboard as a hostage. And he was quite upset when they had given him someone that he termed was a missionary puppet who scowled at everything he set his eyes upon. And so, so he was sure that E.E. E. was just there to do what the missionaries, Protestant missionaries wanted them to do. I later on found out that E.E. E. came aboard, um, uh, the ship, Laplace's ship, with a book of hymns and, uh, scriptures. Oh, and by the way, before I forget, E.E. E. was, um, one of the group of, uh, high-ranking Hawaiians who helped the fir- helped the missionaries translate the scriptures, um, into Hawaiian.
1: Now, uh, Papa EE served many of the ruling elite, as you mentioned, right? growing up with one of uh, the earliest as kind of a childhood companion. But then as he grew older, the ruling elite changed and uh, some died. And uh, as he grew older, he was serving uh, or interacting with a, a younger ruling class. Can, can you talk a little bit about uh, the type of relationship that he had with this new generation of rulers, how did they view him, um, and what were some kind of uh, key moments uh, in in their relationships?
2: Well, all right. So this younger generation of Ali'i were the children of some of the people that I had just mentioned. So Kina'u and Matayo Kikuanau'a, Kikuanau'a was the governor of Oahu, uh, their children, Alexander Liholiho, became King Kamehameha IV. Their other son, Lot, became King Kamehameha V. And then their daughter Kamamalu, Victoria, was um, adopted um, Hawaiian style by John Papa Ee, and these students and other elite uh, children went to the royal chi- the chief royal chief uh, chiefs uh, royal children's school. And so there they were, it was a boarding school. They were supposed to learn Western ways and, and English. And then, um, this school was run by Amos Starr Cook and Juliet Montague Cook, and their descendants, um, are still around today. And so E.E., e., because he was, um, the exemplary, um, Hawaiian Christian, if you will, and because E.E. E. had turned away from the old uh, ways of being they uh, William Richardson another missionary reverend William Richardson um, suggested to the king that John Papa EE e. and his wife Sarai also admired for the degree to which she was Christian, would be the guardians or attendant, the main attendant, if you will, or helpers to the cooks with these children. And at, at one point, there were well over ten children, and so EE e. had a hand in raising um, these future kings and and things. And uh, Victoria later on continued the practice of a female Kuhina Nui or prime minister. Um, which had begun with Ka'ahumano. So what happened was, you know, Ee was so busy. He was a statesman so he participated in the Privy Council. He was a member of the House of Nobles. He traveled around the islands. He was a he was one of the 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 first or second Supreme Court judge. And So he was so busy. At one point, he was even a school superintendent for all of Oahu. He was constantly traveling, and he was also uh, taking care of these young children, these these ali'i children who were used to having many, many attendants. Alexander Liholiho, the day that he arrived at school, he had, I think, at least 30 attendants. So what they were afraid of is that these attendants would um, keep them tied to Hawaiian culture. And so E.E. E. was trustworthy because he was a staunch Christian. But what happened is because E.E. E. was away so often, um, and because the, the Ali'i children were used to having their ways, um, there was a lot of tension at school. And unfortunately, Amos Cook um, took to punishing the children physically with either a rawhide whip, as he explains, he talks about it in his journals, or a ruler. So he would hit these children. And so later on in life, when these children come of age and take their place as the leaders in the Hawaiian kingdom, we see EE slowly being pushed out. And I hypothesize on the different reasons why this might have happened, which is really quite sad, because EE was above all, uh, loyal to those he served. And it might have been because he wasn't there to protect them from this physical punishment, but it might have also been because he was so old-fashioned in his ways, a certain idea of how things should be done in in, in a way that had worked for Hawaiians for many generations, and they were a new generation, and they wanted to do things differently. So it might have been also that EE e. was an inconvenient Older man who wouldn't let them usher in a time of change.
1: Now, um, in his retirement, Papa Ee's life uh, was perhaps even more magnificent uh, in, in in many ways, in terms of the activities he was involved with. Um, can you talk a little bit of uh, what his life looked like after his political career? I guess we might want to call it ended, um, and the types of motivations that that shaped his his final years.
2: Okay. Well towards just before he retired completely from political life, um, the Hawaiian Evangelical Association um asked him if that if he would uh go to the Marquesas, they had a mission there, and try and bring back some of um some people from the Marquesas to come and uh, uh Become Christians in Hawaii to learn literacy and do everything that they could, so that when they would bat, went back, they could help promote the Word of God. So ee here he is. I think he was about sixty eight at the time, um, sixty seven, and so he went to the Marquesas for two months, and they came back with more than ten people, and so he continued dedicating himself to helping the mission, even after uh, long after the kings he had served, such as Kauikauuli and. Um, liholiho had died and then at one point it was really unfortunate he um his first wife sarai he had gotten together with her when he was about 22 so in 1822 and they were partners up until her death i think in uh, about uh, the, the mid uh, 1850s but in any case he married four times And more than anything, he wanted children. And there's a moment when he he writes this this, um, eulogy for uh, Queen Kina'u, for Kina'u. And he tells about the story of when she, he was her personal secretary, as I mentioned earlier. And she was also a staunch Christian. And she says, you know, I don't think I can have children anymore. And I'm really sad about that. And he says, well, I don't think... um, I offended God early on in my youth. He gave me and Sarai a child and then took it away. And then they made a promise to each other that should she get pregnant again, she would give the child to John, Papa, E.E. and Sarai to raise, and then she would feed the child, of course, with her body. And so, but this is important because later on with his fourth, fourth wife, two months before he died, he finally became a father and the child survived. And it's really heartbreaking because he was so happy and the newspapers talk about him bringing this child to town because he had retired to his lands, um, outside of town. And here's this man who is just incredibly happy, blessed to have this child, um, named Irene. And she was, uh, just seven months old when he died. And she ended up, you know, he'd spent his entire life raising other Ali's children and then he dies when his daughter is seven months old and he doesn't she's not even talking then so he didn't even have the pre- pleasure of her saying I love you and then when she's seven years old her mother dies and she becomes an orphan and ends up being raised by two different men one is a Reverend Hyde and the other one is the son of uh, Dr. Judd who was, I think, in the second or third company of um, American missionaries, who was a colleague of John Papa E.E.'s. So it was, it was beautiful and sad at the same time. And at the end of his life, John Papa E.E. E. became a pastor of sorts, if you will, um, preaching sermons in, his, um, in Eva in, on his land. So, but one of his greatest achievements really be, after he uh, retired was that he had a lot of free time and began writing his different series so there's we have over um seventy installments where he gives an eyewitness account of of beliefs and belief related practices um, historical uh, vignettes on people it's it 's really incredible we 're so fortunate and and then we can also see the degree to which Christianity shaped him.
1: Now, um, in the closing of your book, you, you talk a little bit about the legacy of Papa Ii. Um, how would you say people should uh, remember him today? What, what is his importance for Hawaiians?
2: Oh, my goodness. Oh, <laughs> let's see. You know, we have the advantage of, of knowing how it turned out. He was fighting, him and his fellow Hawaiians were fighting so hard for Hawaiian independence to, to show the world that we were a civilized people, that we were literate, that we were Christians, because that was one of the prerequisites for being civilized. And they had faced these different uh, diplomatic incidents, always fighting this gunboat diplomacy with Great Britain and America and France. And they survived all of that. He did everything he could to help his ali'i and his people um, survive. So in the end, what happened, of course, is that in 1893, Queen, Kali'u, Queen uh, Lili'u Okalani, who had been a student at the school where John Ee had served as an attendant, assisting the cooks, she was overthrown by a small group of missionary descendants and American businessmen. And then we became a republic, a territory, and now we're the 50th state. And so when we look back, we see the way that John Papai'i e. e. and other ali'i navigated these periods of, of, of great change. And that is very important for Hawaiians today to realize that, that we survived that and that we will survive this. And what's important right now is in that period when we were being told that we were pagans and heathens for practicing uh, Ho'omana Hawai'i, a Hawaiian religion. Many of us are reembracing the old ways. Some of us never stopped, and and so that's coming back to life now. And we're not feeling bad about it. Knowing your history, what's happened to your people, is is very very important for. Healing from historical trauma, from that intergenerational trauma. And that might be hard for some people to, to think about how that can be so when these events, the overthrow was in 1893. But let me give you an example from my own family is my great grandmother was born the year of the overthrow. And so her mom had to navigate that period. And then my great grandmother passed away when I was 17. And typical of Hawaiian families, um, we knew her quite well. She would stay, take turns staying with different of her children, one of which was my grandmother. And so I actually inherited her Hawaiian language Catholic manual. It's very interesting. And it was because she had made a prophecy that I would be her first grandchild to speak Hawaiian, and so she gave me her Catholic manual. And that was my inspiration for going on to um, learn Hawaiian. So it's something that's not far removed from us. You know, from John Papa Ee's earliest childhood until the day he died, he was strongly motivated by an innate sense of justice, you know, a generous spirit, and a heightened awareness of the importance of kuleana, and and so these are things that we can still r- relate to today. And I find him inspiring. And um, coming to know his life and writings has taught me important lessons about facing challenges and changes at the personal, familial, social, political, intellectual, spiritual, and physical levels. You know, his life is an important r- reminder of what it means to be Oivi or Hawaiian in the face of great and often rapid changes. And he lived his life in accordance with cultural values that our Hawaiian ancestors have handed down through the ages, which means upholding our various responsibilities, having a good work ethic, valuing learning and the arts of listening and speaking well, making the effort to improve ourselves, and striving to be good people, you know? So... He became real to me, as, as real as it is possible for someone to be. He died about 90 years before I was born, but I actually feel like I know him.
1: Well, it's a, it's a fabulous book, uh, one I really enjoyed uh, reading, and uh, I hope some listeners will check it out and get a copy and look through it. Obviously, there's a great detail we did not get to, uh, to cover here, but um, I think these kind of broader contours certainly will um, interest some folks, so... Uh, Before we let you go, though, can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the stuff you are working on now?
2: Oh, yes. So I've continued my work on that class of Hawaiian water deities, which were, oh, they were so important in the earlier time in Hawaiian society. You have this class of Hawaiian reptilian water deities called mo'o. And they, some were honored as uh, war and politic deities. They were often fishpond guardians. Um, because they were thought to attract fish. Some of them were ancestral guardians, like in my case. And so they held a variety of roles in in Hawaiian society. And so they are also thought to mate with humans, which is how we have them as ancestral guardians. And they're actually really fascinating. They embody the life-giving and death-dealing properties of water, the element with which they're associated. And so right now I'm uh, wrapping up that book, which I will publish with UH Press, the same press that I published on Facing the Spears of Change. I'm really excited about that book because, you know, reptilian deities um, have been around for a very long time. You can find them um, around the world in different cultures. And so mo'o continue to be important today for many um, many Hawaiians, they're often associated with the uh, continuity. So that's one thing I'm working on. I'm also continuing to do my work on the continuity and dynamicity of Hawaiian religion, which, uh, as I said, I had a, an article. It's called Mauna Kea Ho'omana Hawaii in Protecting the Sacred, which was published in the journal for the study of religion, nature, and culture. And that's going to be my third book. It's just very interesting to look because when we stop and think of it, there's a little bit of a bias happening with Hawaiian religion is because people just assume that what is traditional is something that is reified. And so my goal is to raise awareness, um, especially from my folklore training about what tradition really is. And so, you know, even Christianity, if you will, has undergone its own, um, transformation and evolution. Uh, as have other religions. So that's an aspect of um, Hawaiian religion I want to explore and how these different uh, practices, beliefs, and belief-related practices uh, in Hawaiian history have continued until this date. And so that's something that uh, I'm working on right now.
1: Yeah, it sounds like you're very busy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I am. (laughs) But I love it.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, good luck with everything, and uh, perhaps we'll be able to talk to you about one of those books down the road. Well,
2: thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.
0: That was my conversation with Marie Alohalani Brown about Facing the Spears of Change, The Life and Legacy of John Papa Ee, published with University of Hawaii Press in 2016. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion.